Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, Arc IT, NCARB, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Nick Cameron. Nick is the Director of Digital Practice at Perkins & Will and the 2022 Chair of the AIA's Technology and Architectural Practice Committee. Nick's central charge is to develop and execute Perkins & Will's digital practice strategies advancing tools, workflows, and emerging technologies that enable design teams to deliver outstanding solutions for clients. In his position with AIA TAP, he is responsible for orchestrating the 2022 Building Connections Congress event with his team, which occurred January 18th through the 20th online. In the three-day event, the program included a keynote from Dr. Vernell Noel, who is an architect and assistant professor at Georgia Institute of Technology, It also included a panel discussion entitled Design, Equity, and Data, which included the amazing panelists Don David Pierre, who is a senior associate at the firm Moody Nolan, Elizabeth Cristoforetti, the founding principal of the firm Supernormal, and Gautam Sundaram, who is a principal and practice leader and a colleague of Nick's at Perkins & Will. And finally, the three-day event concluded with a workshop on using virtual community engagement techniques to round it all out. Nick joined me on the podcast to kick off this rebroadcast of the panel discussion on day two. We discussed the story of how the event came to be, we introduced the panelists, and add with some final thoughts at the end. Oh yeah, Nick asked me to moderate the panel, which you'll find out more about in the episode. All told, it's a testament to the people involved behind the scenes at AIA, Perkins and Will, and the Gable Media team, that events like this can be made available to anyone with an internet connection. It's pretty amazing, and it's why I do this show. I hope you enjoy it, and that it brings you value. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Nick Cameron, Don David Pierre, Elizabeth Cristoforetti, and Gautam Sundaram. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you and, and have you. Thanks, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. Something I've looked forward to for a long time. I've looked forward to this conversation as well. And just to intro this, because this show is a little bit different than a typical episode, I was recently invited by you uh, to moderate a panel, and this was for the AIA TAP Committee before we introduce the actual content of this episode. I would love it if you would introduce yourself to the audience. So my name is Nick Cameron. I am an architect and have been for, I hate to say it now, 20 years or so. I work at the firm Perkins & Will. I uh, lead the digital practice there, as a director of digital practice. So I'm very much focused on technology and how we can leverage technology to design and deliver for our clients. 
and for our clients and the communities that they build their projects, where their schools go, hospitals, and look to strengthen communities and create sustainable places. And Perkins and Will has a bunch of offices. You are based out of Chicago, yes? So I like to say I live in Chicago. I'm a what we call a corporate employee. Uh, so I'm connected to all 26 of our studios. So I'm able to work across literally the globe. And, and we met at, I think, the AIA's large firm roundtable uh, officially. But previous to that, I attended a couple of the talks that you and others have done at Autodesk University. And that, I think, was my first exposure to the work that you guys have been doing and kind of leading the way in digital practice and putting it on display and sharing what you've learned and implemented along the way, which is fantastic. So I just wanted to say thank you for all that. That, that was really cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that as a, a compliment to our team. I, yep. get to, I get to talk about a lot of these things, but there are uh, so many talented people that we have in our organization and the way that we work across the different studios and the teams and the different markets and all that other good stuff that we get to bring all those ideas together and, and push them forward. And uh, we'd like to say leaders lead, and that means that we share, and that's what propels us to keep being innovative. Yeah, and you guys are doing some amazing, amazing stuff. I, I think the most recent thing that I saw presented, which is not that recent at all anymore, but was you guys had a, a giant robotic arm and you were doing some fabrication, some wood fabrication with that pretty assembly, things like that. Yeah, as, as part of one of our labs, our research labs, we have a roboticist, Akim Hassan, and he was in residence at the Autodesk Build Space. There's a new name for it. I can't remember what it is now, but we were very much interested in timber, timber construction, and robotics in terms of how do we create instructions the way that we do now is through paper documents and that lets a lot of people know where to put things, how to put them together to a certain extent. We're not going to talk about means and methods, of course, but the thinking of how would you instruct a robot or a machine and how can we get closer to that so that our design intent can be delivered in the highest fidelity. And it's something that continues to interest us. And we're working more and more with uh, great partners on the construction side, uh, including Zaner Metals, who I think a lot of people know. Mm-hmm thinking about how do we work closer together? How do we uh, deliver that design intent uh, as close to the original sketch or idea as it, as it was? Man, there's, a, there's so many things we could talk about there, but we won't. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we're we're going we're gonna to remain disciplined today. Okay, so let's talk about the content of this episode and how this all came together. So give everybody a, a quick kind of description of what the AIA TAP is and what you have to do with it. And then we can get into this event in particular. Sure. So AIA TAP, uh, TAP stands for Technology and Architectural Practice, is a knowledge community. There's a bunch of them that the AIA runs. I should, probably should know the number. It's 20-something. There are a lot. There's a yeah. lot, yeah. Uh, and this one's focused on technology and the practice. Uh, and I've had friends, friends that Evan and I, we both have, that have been part of this um, in the past. And it's, it's actually a five-year commitment, so to speak, um, to be part of the leadership for the community. I just started year three, and part of the responsibility is to put on the Building Connections Congress, which is essentially a mini-conference or symposium. In the past, it's been a one-day event in Washington, D.C. at AIA National 
um, which is a very cool place to go to and present. And I've been, happy, I've been lucky enough to present there. But with the pandemic, the last two years, including this past month, it was virtual. And I think like everyone else, we were like, how do you do this virtually? How do you take advantage of what is possible? And some of the things we started thinking about was we can get more people to join. Not everyone can fly to D.C. The room only holds so many people and so on and so forth. Totally. Um, yeah. And it's all the way on the East Coast and, and all these other things. Um, so doing it virtually, we could open it up to a larger audience. And then the question is, how do you keep people's attention? Because it's very hard to do on Zoom. Um, you can't do a whole day thing. People just zone out. So we want to break it down into smaller chunks and offer, I think, a, a few things where we're striving towards where I am, I think our group is, what are we learning in some of the larger firms or what are we learning as a whole? And, and how do we share that with the sole proprietors uh, out there? Uh, my wife is also an architect. She is a sole proprietor. She does not have the research budget that Perkins and Will does. Um, but I think as architect- She has you. <laughs> she has me, yeah. She yeah. doesn't listen to me all that much. Um, but <laughs> I think as architects in, in our responsibility- uh, to the planet, to our communities, uh, we certainly can be working together and sharing what we learn, so that we we raise you know all boats. I think is is how the, the saying goes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because we're we only got one planet, and we got to do the best that we can with it. So so that's part of why we put this symposium together. The other part, you know, with a lot of the unrest, especially last summer, there's a lot of focus on, rightfully so, equity and uh, how are we going to be bettering our communities? And I think in the past, a lot of the talks from TAP have been focused solely on technology and, and maybe the things that are brewing up. So machine learning, AI, VR, tons to do with 3D modeling. And what we started to talk about last year was how can we share Again, what we've learned in some in firms with everyone, how to leverage data um, that's equitable to plan for better communities that we're designing in. And the simplest way we thought about it was we all prepare site analysis one way or another. How do we expand that idea to include data sets that inform us about the socioeconomic backgrounds of the communities that we're delivering in? so that we're not missing the mark, that we're elevating those communities and the people that live in them and work in them. And how can we share that knowledge? That, that's really where the idea came from. Part of that's been, I've been lucky enough to work with some really amazing people within Perkins Will, Gabrielle Bullock, who leads our JEDI effort globally. We were working on a project in LA and she had mentioned a book to me called Palace for the People, which is about libraries. It was a term that Carnegie actually coined. And it talks about why these spaces, why something that's built in a community is so important and how can it propel that community. And it takes me right back to just why I got into this and probably why you got into this is, is architects. Is mm. We can make a difference and absolutely make a difference uh, to give folks places of pride and places to get together and be communities. Yeah. And make, make them better stewards of culture and community. And I think one of the great things about technology is that it can connect people in its kind of biggest sense. And there is, I think, your idea of bringing this to all size firms, because sole proprietors, very small firms make up the majority of the AIA 
and firms across the nation who are even not part of the AIA. Uh, so like you said, like this technology is available and we're sharing this information. It's available to everybody. The kind of data sets that you're talking about, whether it's environmental, whether it's demographic, even if they're not, maybe it's an awareness campaign on one mm-hmm. level, but it's also an awareness campaign of things to look out for when you when you do use it. And I think that was a big focus of our of this talk, which was gaps in the data. What do you as a user or a consumer of that data need to be aware of and look out for when you're, you can't just blindly trust it. So there's a, a series of questions that you kind of need to ask yourself and ask out loud for everybody involved in the project to make sure that, that we're making the right decisions based on the data and not just taking it as this, the, the one true standard, because it, it quite potentially is not. Yeah, th- there's inherent bias. And we know that some of us have learned that in different ways. And that's where we want to make people aware that you have to investigate a little bit. You just can't blindly trust what, what is being given to you um, because data can be manipulated or shaded in different ways, the way that you filter things or the way that you calculate from it. So yeah, that, that was a big part of what we wanted to do was raise awareness. And I think architects kind of question everything to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is just another example of uh, how some really smart people that that we know uh, have been doing this. And that's that's where the kind of talk goes. I was very happy with everyone that participated. So let's do a, a quick run through about who was uh, on the panel. And maybe you can just give a little bit of insight on how that all pulled together. Sure. Well, first off, we needed someone that could moderate. And I do listen to the podcast. And I know how much you love architecture and what we do. So I had reached out to you and asked, Evan, would you, would you think about moderating this panel? Uh, we went through what we thought it would be and where it would go. And you obliged. Thank you again for doing that. But we did want to look out kind of across the spectrum from large firms to small and get folks with different backgrounds from different markets to come talk with us. So that, that's, what we, that's what we looked out to do. One of the first folks that we found was Don David Pierre, who's a senior associate at Moody Nolan, who won the AIA award last year for Firm of the Year. She's one of 600 black women who are registered architects, which I think is just a number that we can all hopefully grows, all help out in doing that. She has 25 years of experience, so she has a broad range of projects that she's worked on uh, and worked in different areas of the country. And she excels at providing services that are inclusive, contextual, and responsive. That's where her passion lies. Um, that's why we wanted to get her on this panel. We have also had Elizabeth Cristoforetti, and she is a founding principal at Supernormal, which does architecture. But I think her focus is more on the urban design scale. So as you mentioned a minute ago about different uh, practices of different scales, and it's really a, a research practice focused on design and form and processes that balance contextual and cultural relevance with the contemporary imperative to scale beyond a single instance and to reach more people in urban places. So to say that she's no stranger to data is an understatement, right? This is a, a huge part of, of her practice, and, and she has a lot of amazing insight to share. Yeah, and on their site, Super Normal. They share a lot of the, of the work that they've been doing, and it's it's really impressive if people want to check it out. And then to round out the panel, I invited a friend of mine, a colleague that I that I get to work with, and I knew he was right in the center of all this, uh, Gautam Sundaram, 
who's from Perkins, he works at Perkins and Will and leads our urban design practice in Boston. He initially studied architecture and he credits that with being a really well-rounded planner. I think it's a scalar thing. He can work at different varying scales mm -hmm. and takes that all into account as he's planning campuses and neighborhoods. And he's always, and this is something I've learned from him, you know, asking all these different questions of different people, uh, looking for a diverse perspectives in all the work that he's doing. Well, let's jump into that actual conversation that we had with the panel, and then I'll see you on the other side of that. Let's begin with data and how it relates to the design process. We've all been told that data is a digital gold of sorts, and we also know that it's plentiful and widely available for various uses on projects. We should state up front that data is a tool that is available for designers to use during the process of design to make better informed decisions. What are some examples of widely known and useful data sources and tools that architects should know about? Let's start with you, Don. Census data, if you're planning a community, government websites about population and resources, services and communities you can find there to find out about demographics in a community, median income, things like that uh, in a community. Also, I think historical data about what's been built, uh, what the history in terms of physical built space is of a, of a region or a neighborhood, depending on your project. Thanks for getting that started, Don. What are some additional examples of lesser known data sources and tools that can be useful during design? Elizabeth? I mean, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good list. You know, I think it depends on what you're after. At the urban scale, we do tend to rely on these larger geospatial data sets. But at the architectural scale, increasingly, I think we're starting to uh, look at IoT or Internet of Things, which are largely sensor-based data sets. And I think maybe we could even group within that something that sits in between the urban and the architectural, which is mobile device data, which I know some people have been using for, um, for a variety of things, too. So there is a lot of data available, as you all just said. How do we balance that when it comes to actually applying it on our projects during that kind of initial research and development stage? I do think this question of how we balance our data sources is a really big deal. I think it's very, I think the term fashionable was thrown out at one point, um, maybe in our prep or Evan by you to think about big data. But, you know, Data is created by people because they have a question, you know, like there's a lot of data in the world, but how we collect it and assemble it matters and what's there and what isn't there, like what's, what isn't there actually matters a lot too. And how we balance these big data sets that have been assembled with little data sets. So like the, uh, the collective and the individual or like big data and small data stories about people. I think that matters too. So I just don't want to enter that into the conversation that we should be looking at big data, but also just talking to people. Gautam, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this part of the conversation as well. Do you have anything to add? Sure. And, and, and Elizabeth, as, as she very quickly described, you know, there's a lot of data out there. And, uh, and I think there are many aspects of it. Uh, it's sort of like multi-layered in a way. 
of uh, you know things we should be very concerned about. One of them is really rushing to conclusions on the data and what it's telling us and the amount of data that we are bringing together. And so in order to make sure that we are not concluding these based on a single data set, we are actually interweaving this with context and with the broader understanding of how it really feels, uh, uh, whether it is uh, about a neighborhood or a city, or that really brings down to the census data as well. Uh, another example would be is that when we are looking at just median and when you look at census tracts, the census tracts are very, very different the way they are defined, but we want to look at distribution. So it's, it's, it's very important to really understand what is the question that we're trying to solve and where we're getting the data from and the sources of it. Thanks, Gautam. I want to jump in here real quick and stitch equity into the discussion. So let's talk hypotheticals before we get into maybe some real world examples. What are the possible negative consequences or dangerous outcomes of the way data is collected and then presented today? Elizabeth? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the the easy answer is also to say, like, there is a lot of information that we can't see. And so um, the risk, I think, when we look at the things that jump out at us or have been assembled by people with, you know, their own perspectives and views of the world is that we're not seeing things because they just aren't being shown to us. And so um, I suppose the danger there is that we're overlooking something really important. Don, can you add to that? Yeah, I would agree with both Gautam and Elizabeth on that point. I think that there's always a background and context. There are always things that are not necessarily tangible or quantifiable in a, in a data set. And so bringing a broader lens to analysis and really looking at the big picture, um, understanding that you might be seeking a broad range of information that's maybe not displayed in in the numbers that are in front of you. I definitely want to get to what you brought up earlier, Elizabeth, but I want to wait because I want to get to what can people do about it. And, and I do believe one of the answers is talking to people, right? Like getting interactive, but I want to wait to get there just for a little bit longer. So equity takes us beyond the tools and even the project at hand. When we think about how we're approaching this, the impact of a project rarely stops at the property lines of the site. And I know Gautam and Elizabeth are working at the urban scale, and many architects and design teams are dealing at the micro and macro scale. We see outcomes that impact the communities surrounding the projects we work on. And it's worth mentioning the future occupants of these projects, beyond those who are at the table providing input during design as stakeholders, These future occupants are forced to live with previous representation and decisions by others. So let's talk real-world examples. In terms of the application of data in the decision-making process on projects, what examples do you have where data was leveraged in a way that showed bias? I can lead off with an example. You know, you talked about uh, bias, and I think there is another aspect about this too, that you know, as we use data and tools, it's very important that we come in without a bias and that it is seen at that same level of transparency. But the second aspect about it also is building consensus because it's a very critical tool that will help us understand what is the problem we are trying to solve and get us to have consensus. Once you have clarity on the problem you're solving, then we can move on to the strategies and solutions that come out of it. 
Um, we had a, a, a project that we were actually involved in in the city of Boston, where we're realigning a major highway, I-90 highway along the Charles River. And it impacts communities, um, it has environmental impacts and all kinds of impacts. And the residents have been, you know, we've had over 40 different stakeholder groups itself, not just uh, folks. Um, and one of the things that we did was to really uh, look through and bring all aspects about environmental stewardship, about mobility systems, about social impacts, just as a series of layers of data and helping folks understand here are all of the issues and mapping them. Uh, that itself was, I felt like a game changer uh, within the two-year time frame where we were all able to really first come around to say, okay, here are the problems you're trying to solve. And then from there, come to a series of solutions and then go back to our um, you know, public agencies like MassDOT to start to really rethink and, and shift in their, uh, in their attitude about how they think about transportation systems. And so that's where I felt like the way data was used to really bring the communities together as a unifier, but also to bring it through the lenses of equity was very, very critical and made, make that awareness. Yeah, maybe you can speak kind of generally and then I'll be more specific. I, I think we, we tend, um, at my firm, we have often gotten involved in these projects where a client will say, we have all of this data, come and help us look at it to, you know, solve a problem or make a project better or whatever it is. And you go in and there's just like so much information. And I think that, that often, you know, especially in our like early years of starting our firm, like we go in and be like, what are we actually trying to solve for? It's like the the problem was the data, but the problem was never the data. It was like a red herring, you know, that that somehow like we were trying to solve. It was a very sort of strange thing. Like the data was, there's just like, I don't know, like we've always had data as architects. We've always been working with information, you know, it's just structured and packaged in a different way now. Um, and so I think this idea that data is a red herring is one one thing. And, I, and I'll say in, in tangent to that, like I, we, we got involved in a situation at one point where, you know, like, again, back to this question of like, what information is available, like real estate data is pretty, like, like, pretty reliably available stuff, you know, and so you can know what makes money, like, you know, like, really well, we, we are, we're good at understanding what's going to generate profit, um, because we can count that really easily. Um, and so when we rely upon that data, we are basically solving for the same, we're just speeding up the cycle of late capitalism, you know? And I, and I think that's one of those things that I, I feel like we sometimes walk, just candidly as architects, we walk on the lineup all the time. This, this question of what are the project value systems? What are we coming into the project with? Who are we fiduciary to? What are we solving for? Who are we solving for? Um, you know, these are things that need to come before we decide what data to use, what data to gather, and then how to balance um, what we do, which is really heuristic as designers. You know, we like learn through doing stuff with algorithmic processes, which are which are actually really different than heuristic ones. I agree to your point, Elizabeth, about walking that line. Um, you know, we've, we've been working for about a year on a project in Buffalo, New York, which is a cultural heritage preservation project, really. There's a, a district in Buffalo, African-American Heritage Corridor, where the neighborhood has suffered from, obviously, decades of disinvestment. And so if you look at the numbers, if you look at the real estate values until the recent attention of it, um, you know, it's, it's quite depressed and there's not much development there. There are these beautiful historic assets that have been holding on with, you know, chewing gum and duct tape 
um, and the efforts of some really, really de dedicated people to keep them running. But then um, the city is looking to see how can we preserve this corridor in two ways, what's economically viable and sustainable, what kind of development can we bring there that can keep this corridor um, economically stable in the future, but then what are the stories that want to be told and be preserved and what's important to the communities that are still there holding on and have been there for decades and bring such a rich culture to the district. And, and, and at face value, maybe those two data sets seem at odds with each other, but it's, um, you know, it's part of our challenge and, and working with the community to, to meet everyone's needs in as much as we can. As architects and urban designers in these situations, thinking about the professions that we're involved in being service providers and not the owners of the projects, how do you take a step back and say, let's look farther down the road, let's look bigger than the project site? How do you change that perspective with the stakeholders as real world examples of, of how that actually happens? Because I think a lot of people are in the position of, I'm here to do what they need me to do and, and not more, especially when we're getting paid for the time that we spend on projects, right? So less time in, in air quotes is better. What you're talking about is a big investment. So what are some actionable ways to actually get the stakeholders involved in these projects to have that really big picture view? I think it's, it's really about building trust and being good listeners right? Making sure that everyone feels heard and understands that there will be different perspectives and there will be different lenses at the table and establishing that trust and that if in the end, if our end goal is to come to an agreement and, and to, to, for the better outcome of this project, together with all of our voices involved, then we'll get there. I think too, the, the question of who we're working for at a given time really matters. I mean, especially now, I don't know if anyone else read, you know, Capital in the 21st Century by Piketty. It's really good, by the way, at least the introduction you can get through. But he points out this like really important thing, which is that public capital has been diminishing for a long time and private capital has been increasing. And that's a big deal for us because that means that we rely upon financing from a lot of private sources rather than rather than public sources. And when we work for municipalities or public agencies, I think the question that you're asking, Evan, is really different than when we're working for private, you know, you know, for, for private capital effectively. And that's not to say that anyone's motives are bad or good. They just fundamentally are they have like different value systems at stake. You know, when we're working for cities, we're working ultimately for citizens, you know, and for for the people. And so, especially right now in a post-redevelopment era, you know, like the question of community process is going to come to the front immediately. So the question then becomes, well, how do we best extract information and have a conversation and dialogue with the community? Um, whereas when you're working with private uh, capital, I think the question is a little bit different. And the, the, let's say, the bandwidth or the desire to engage more broadly can also can, can actually like kill a project because mm -hmm. we don't have time and fee to do that. So I just want to point out that like from a professional perspective, we just we have different responsibilities at different times and trying to figure out how to be um, sensitive and intelligent in both of those places is like it's a, it's really hard. And I want to say one other thing which I think is so fascinating about this conversation um, and this particular question Evan that you asked, 
the fact that we are now relying upon information that exceeds the scale of a building when we're operating as architects is like this really interesting, like it signals to me this idea of the kind of conflation of our disciplines. We always think about urbanism and architecture as related, but fundamentally separate. And I think this, this availability and dare I say imperative of information and uh, the mirror of COVID that's been shown to us is kind of like this very interesting like compression of the urban and the architectural here, which, which I, I quite like, actually. I think it's great. Something that stood out to me during Dr. Noel's keynote yesterday for this event was her urging to refuse to remain ignorant. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about having access to this data, I think I think that is part of the strategy when talking to, you know, depending on the project types, as you said, to just bring that information to the table, but also be willing to dig in and go deep into that and present it to whoever needs to hear it. And but also kind of ask good questions about that data, which I I think is something that you were referring to earlier, Gautam, which is you've got to ask the people involved in the project uh, if they agree or if they've seen something different from what you're finding in the data and kind of just presenting it and not necessarily being emotionally tied to it, but in a very scientific manner, right? Using that data, presenting mm-hmm. it, and then asking those questions. So I guess what I want to know from from you guys is what are good rules of thumb to questions or questions that you could ask oneself while working with data? I mean, I could talk about this all day. So okay. I will totally answer this question. Right. <laughs> um I actually just think we need to like revisit our value systems. Why are we doing what we're doing in the world? And who are we responsible to? And it's that same thing that I keep coming back to. But I think if we don't let the value systems lead, A, our decision about what data to collect and B, our decision about how to process that information as an algorithm into any kind of output that we can use to make decisions, the whole conversation is is useless. I think it's, and, and it, it's like a, it's a really it's a really fascinating kind of professional practice question because it forces us to look inside ourselves before we look outside in a way that's much more rigorous than I think we have been forced to do in a long time. Yeah. You know, one other thing could be also to look at it uh, as we're starting to see the see the shrinking public capital, uh, as Elizabeth also pointed out earlier on, is if we can have very early on uh, conversations and really think about every project probably as an opportunity to solve a broader issue, uh, which goes beyond just the economic value of the project. And so that talks gets into resilience and, and many other aspects too. And if there is a way we can start to have those visioning or those goals conversations very early on, there's a little bit of putting that accountability on our clients as well, that we need them to make a contribution to this as well, to serve a much broader uh, contextual issue. Uh, whether it's around environmental issues or social inequities uh, and many other aspects too. Anything to add to that, Dawn? Uh, I would just agree 100% with really taking a, a hard look at who we are accountable to and who we want to be accountable to, both as designers and, and our, on, our, on the client side. And then just really think about who's, whose voice and whose story is not represented in the data. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, who, who is represented is a good question to ask. Who's collecting it? Who has access to it? I think all of those are the types of questions that should be kind of fundamental at the very beginning when starting to go through it. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. ArcIT. 
One of the things that I really like about the conversation that I had with the folks over at ArcIT was to learn about their Design Under Influence video series, which is really empowering you in the firm to be proactive about how IT is supporting your business. One of the ways that they're doing that is the Design Under Influence video series, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And in particular, I was scrolling through all of the great training sessions that they're offering in these video series for people who are dealing with IT decisions and running their business. One of the things that stuck out to me was this article entitled Free IT Budget Spreadsheet Templates for Architects and Design Firms, providing you the downloadable spreadsheet that you can then go enter your equipment and the professional services that you may or may not need, depending on the staff within your company, And it really gives you a great overview into what it's going to take to run your business more effectively from an IT standpoint, and also be able to decide if that's really where your best value is served in your business. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms, and their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions, That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly, and enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or, in some cases, even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click work with us. Let's talk about content. What is content? You're probably thinking Revit families. Well, yes, of course. But the reality is that you use dozens of applications in your workflows. How many file types and formats are you using and creating every week? Here are some of the usual suspects, CAD and modeling files like AutoCAD, Civil 3D, Rhino and Revit and SketchUp, visualization files like 3D Studio Max scenes and models, materials and assets, photos and imagery, including renderings, site context and snapshots, project information like spreadsheets and product cut sheets, URLs for your intranet and external websites, and even marketing assets like your PowerPoint decks and proposals. I wish it wasn't true, but this list just scratches the surface. You know what I'm talking about. We all deal with a lot of data, and this is the new problem. 
The good news is, if it's digital, Avail can handle it. Avail has seen more than a thousand different file types in their platform. They've taken a very holistic approach to content management problems in the AEC market. Most of the time, someone in a firm is looking to solve a specific problem like Revit family storage. But the fact of the matter is that you should be solving for the longer term. Avail future-proofs your technology investment. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. NCARB's analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Participate in this industry-wide survey to share your experiences and insights from working in architecture, engineering, or construction. Your feedback will help guide changes to what being a licensed architect looks like and impact how architects collaborate with other professionals in the future. Whether you're an architect or you work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. Make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org slash AOP. And now let's get back to our conversation. Can you guys identify other gaps that may exist in the data that's out there that is accessible that people are using on projects today? Can I append to that question? Because I'm really interested in Gautam and Don's perspective on this and maybe Evan, yours too, because you certainly are obviously an expert in this as well. I mean, I kind of wonder if our roles as architects and designers in society has to shift a little bit, not just to rely upon the things that we are certainly expert in already and very good at, but now to, you know, kind of um, push into to actually creating data sets and be leaders in this. Because I, I, I do think, you know, like we've relied upon journalists and the government and real estate to create a lot of data sets, but I wonder if we need to get into that as well. And that's tough for us because we're client serving, you know, we're like, eat what you kill kind of people. So I don't know how we kind of break out of that paradigm with our sad fees. But I do wonder if our role here as designers needs to, sh- to shift a little bit. Are you guys seeing that at all? What do you guys think? I- I'm fascinated. Absolutely. Um, you know, for me, one of the turning points, uh, and in a way, a big sigh of relief was, as you see a lot of this data and information, um, you don't understand every aspect of it, you know, just given our backgrounds and just being a single discipline that's around architecture, design, and urban design, is that there are many other aspects from public health. Um, and so I felt that the turning point really was that, okay, I need to get help and I need to bring in the other voices of the policymakers, uh, of uh, public health experts. And so how we can bring in those voices, and that's sort of what has made it very exciting because now we're all looking at really what this data could represent and highlighting where the gaps are. Because the gaps are not just in the data, but there's a gap in scale as well. And it's important to get that differentiation in there too, which gets us a very sort of a, you know, a really 360 viewpoint of diverse viewpoints of the same issue from multiple angles. So that's exciting, but definitely a shift there. Definitely. I think, um, I think there's a lot to be said about partnerships. I think in, in, you know, in the perfect project, you have all of those di- di- things, maybe disparate or or maybe disciplines that you don't think are usually at the table in a design exercise, but that really bring that perspective and a, just a different way of looking at things. People who are are used to be looking at data from a different side of things, um, uh, I think it's really important. I think that partnerships is a is a worthy avenue worth pursuing, especially mm-hmm. if you're a sole practitioner or a small firm, because there is special training needed 
to collect data appropriately. It is a scientific endeavor. And, and so I was going to ask if any of you have been involved in data collection, but as far as like an actionable thing, I mean, there are large firms that have research teams, right? And they can lead and participate in that. But it, for small size firms, sole practitioners, it would be pretty difficult. Uh, so have you guys seen examples of people partnering successfully to to do that? Or are there any stories out there that could give people hope for <laughs> for actually making that happen? You know, one story I can share that we did at Perkins and Will was um, after Hurricane Maria, our leadership uh, really felt that we must, we, we absolutely must find ways of how we can help. But how can we be more purposeful where it is not something that is about doing something now? How can it be a lasting partnership and and, and support that we can do? Um, and to this exact point, because uh, it was you know it was working within a within a region where we had limited resources as well is that we actually went in a research.org path where we sort of created this academic platform that brought academic institutions, some private firms as well. And when, it, when we came together under a research uh, organization kind of a platform, it, would, it really made sharing information and bringing diverse expertise as well. And also helped many, many firms, regardless of their size, to participate, but then also to learn from each other on how we can how we can think about these broader global issues that affect us. And I wonder if uh, there are ways that we can continue to push under the research and with academic institutions and really uh, bring them in because they have the knowledge capital to help and support this and to create more opportunities for these kind of platforms uh, through these uh, through these foundations or other opportunities. One question that came up in the chat, and I think that this is probably a good place to to put this in is I, I think on as as architects and urban designers working on project after project after project, you're looking at a lot of data all the time. So you're used to it. But working with a client, if it's not a big client, it could be somebody who doesn't do this very often. And so they're participating in a process that it might be the only time they ever participate in a process mm-hmm. like this. How do you communicate this information with them so that it's understandable? And so that you can make decisions based on it. In some ways, I think it's a reminder for us when we have a client like that, right? We, we're mm-hmm. so used to jumping right in and using language and vernacular and like just hit the ground running. And so sometimes when we have a client who's like, wait, start from the beginning, <laughs> explain it to me from the bottom to the top. It really, I think, can be beneficial to us as a team to slow it down and start from the basics and, you know, explain things in layman's terms from the beginning of the process to the end. It, it kind of opens your eyes again and I think maybe um, slows you down from just bypassing those exits on the highway <laughs> that you don't pay attention to. Yeah, I think I think one of the strengths, I, I suppose we're talking about the data collection and processing. Yeah, I think one of the strengths of the, the idea of such a process is that it forces us to do the things we should be doing anyways, designers, which is clarifying the narrative and conceptual underpinnings of our project vis-a-vis the site or the context that we're, that we're working in and, and what it is we're actually doing. And so it kind of forces us to be, you know, like in really simple terms, good storytellers to be able to communicate what we're, what we're doing, you know, what, what our agenda is for the project with a capital P, you know, why are we doing what we're doing and how does, the resolution of form actually attach itself to 
you know, or the plan or whatever, whatever scale or mode we're working in, how does it attach itself to the, to the story? And I, and I think once you can get that narrative clear and you can start then, you know, showing, showing, you know, backing up that narrative in relationship to information that, you know, I think that, that, that seems to be, seems to be a go. One advice that was shared with me was we need to be ruthless in editing when we are sharing information because the amount of information out there and as Elizabeth very rightly said, is that we have to really bring it out to what's relevant, but also weave it into the overall narrative of the project. It needs to be part of that story and uh, not just a series of separate bar charts and, 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 and really make it purposeful to what we're trying to uh, uh, visualize and also message. Yeah, I, I think about the kind of ethical implications of presenting data and through that ruthless editing, being very careful not to blindly trust what's mm-hmm. in there and, and and present the entire story. That's just something we have to be very cognizant of when we're going through that process. As I, as I think about students today who are being trained in this profession to come out and, and basically be self-sufficient, the licensing process is also based on being completely self-sufficient. And I had an episode on my podcast with Dr. Upali Nanda from HKS, who runs their research department, and, and basically making a very pointed argument that search, which students are trained to do, like Google everything, Wikipedia, it, like that's what you do when you are presented with a problem is you begin a search. There's a huge difference between search and research. And so the level of, I guess, just seriousness in presenting all of the information and, and communicating it in a way that's understandable is extremely important for architects and urban planners, right? Like when we think about what you're talking about, Elizabeth, with the communication style has to be presented in a way that people can digest it. And, and everybody has to be able to digest it so that you can build a consensus and move forward with it. The onus is on us to do that if we're the ones in charge of, of collecting that data and then presenting it. Do you guys have any stories about how that has not worked or, or what could be improved upon in that process to, to help people do a better job at it? We're watching this today. I mean, it's an art because uh, we're always continuing to work at it and, 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 and getting better at it because you're absolutely right. You know, there are, we want to make sure that we are not overlaying this with our bias as well, uh, but we're also being very mindful about the source of where the information is, making sure there is a historic review as well of, uh, of making sure that the data is, uh, verified and we're bringing context to it as well. But it, it's, it's a craft that um, I feel we will continue to evolve and, and refine. But I think as much as we can try to make sure that we are being contextual and there is an empathy about the way it is conveyed. Uh, and that's critical. And that, that is the toughest aspect about it, is how do, we, how do we convey the empathy behind the data that, and what it represents. All right. Well, before we get to... Q&A. I love architects because we're optimists by nature. And I want to talk about, you know, we've identified some gaps. We've identified some of the shortcomings that could be presented in data. And so how do we begin to fix this? The need for data isn't going away. And we can all see that it's going to become, I'm sure, even more foundational in the decision-making process and documentation of our projects moving forward. So I'd like to wrap this up in a more conversational format. So I just have a couple of questions that I'll put to the group and then feel free to take this wherever you feel would deliver the most value to those who are watching today. 
how do we get to the qualitative data that strives for equitable outcomes? What barriers need to be removed? And how can architects as a profession get involved in the solution? Let's see. I do think this just like from a like really pragmatic perspective, the mode of working in which we are bouncing between data uh, collection and analysis and the thing that we would otherwise do, which is design projects in a meaningful way, you know, and continuously oscillating between those two and not going down a rabbit hole too far Mm -hmm. just seems like kind of generally like useful, you know, protocol, you know, it's that, that oscillate oscillation between the big and the little continuously. I, I think that's very, very helpful. And I will, I will go back to a point you made earlier, Elizabeth, about having the conversation with, with clients and stakeholders early on and kind of establishing what, what is it that we stand for or that we're trying to accomplish with this project and then keeping that top of mind through the process each time you go back and revisit your data or collect more data or push the design forward. Evan, you said this rightly. We are optimists by nature. And uh, I truly look at this. I'm really excited about it because of a couple of two, uh, two things that really I feel have uh, transformed. One is how we are using data and really helping us understand what some of the complex issues are. But the second aspect of it is equity has not is no more some is a, a siloed lens. It has become the ethos of practices. And it has become the ethos of how we are making decisions as well. And so now when, when that starts to influence how we are really examining data and what it's telling us and helping us make decisions, it is going to take us into a realm that really opens up many possibilities about how we are addressing issues. So I truly look at this in an in, in, it's going to continue to accelerate, and I'm very excited about how it continues to evolve. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I also fall, fall in this, like, not necessarily, like, maybe techno-pragmatic zone. I try not to, like, veer towards techno-optimism too much, but I like this idea. I don't know if anyone's heard of this, of data humanism. You know, this idea that we're always kind of coming at this, and that potentially we're even reshaping the way that we think about utilizing data in order to produce something. So at the end of the day, it really is just information. I, I think kind of falling back on this idea that, that what we do is, you know, we come from a kind of humanist background and we need to bring that every time we get involved in these, in these conversations, you know, and I, I think this, this, and I'll, maybe I'll go back to this one more time too, since we're being like, you know, reflective here, the, the, the idea that the role of the architect, you know, we like, it's shifting, right? We're not just like a little, you know, autonomous being designing a single building, you know, we're doing it collectively with people and with all of this information. And now we're starting to do it with computers too. So I think that the notion that we are designing that, that when we design things, the design of our processes, and that can be computational or otherwise, is just as important as the design of the, the products on the other side. And that, I mean, I think that's a mind, that's a mindset shift. I think it can be a painful one because it means letting go of a lot of the things that we've been like religiously doing since the Renaissance. But I do think it holds a lot of potential and excitement, you know, and, and hopefully for our practice, it also can be very empowering in terms of the impact that we can make within communities and, and, and in terms of the way that we might be able to have our value systems um, be shared with the world. I'm going to jump into some questions that have been brought up in the chat because what I like what you're saying, Elizabeth, and I, I, I hate to say the answer is do more because <laughs> it seems like that's always 
one of the recommendations for architects is to do to do more. I do think that architects should be involved more on the policy side because if if we can have that big picture perspective, we can also potentially point out the underrepresentations that exist in the data and then we can get involved in the policy side of things to help make sure that those holes are identified and and taken care of. But that's difficult when we work on project to project to project to also be involved in the local government side of things, in the policy side of things. So there does seem to need to be more of a balance. So that was a short digression. But I think, you know, one of the questions that that came up here is, is, do you think that with the massive amount of data that's available now, does it create new opportunities for the profession? Can it expand our role in the use, creation, and sharing of new data, perhaps being involved with the implementation of the Internet of Things? It can also make us totally irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) because you know um a lot of other people are a lot more sophisticated at doing this than we are Mm -hmm. so i think we probably have to get really smart really fast in terms of making a case for you know why we can be at the table and what our what our value is and yeah i mean i don't know it is sort of a like feel a little pessimistic when i hear you say like do more architects but it because it does feel like that but I, I do think it um, it signals a much larger shift in, in who we are in relationship to society. And, and the dance that we have with society is not static. It's always changing. And we're at a major triggering hinge point right now. This is where our value lies. And I think what you're saying is connecting this information to real people. Like architecture is for people. So when you talk about that connection being the one of the very important parts of that, that's hard to remove from that equation unless everybody agrees that the data is solid and we're just going to go with that and we're not going to include people in that anymore, which I don't see happening. I hope you don't. <laughs> what, one question that came up is, should the collective data be open source for everyone to use? It does seem like firms and teams are kind of reinventing this every time they do a project. And I think a lot of firms are collect, you know, they've got their processes and that information then doesn't get outside of that silo for other people to build upon and use. So the question is from the audience, should our collective data be open source for everyone to use? I think transparency is very important and sharing that information, but it's also very important to share sort of the process as well as to how the data has been collected and what the analysis process has been. And I'll share a short example over here, uh, which which I had never encountered before. You know, the project that uh, referenced earlier on in Puerto Rico, where we did a whole vulnerability assessment and really understood where all the vulnerable populations are, and we created this amazing platform collaborating with NASA on that too, um, which helped us assess, you know, in a microgrid where uh, who's what stresses each one is facing. And I left that summit really thinking that I've made a valuable contribution in helping all communities understand and share their information. I received a lot of calls from insurance companies right away for access to that data Mm. and and how they may want to think about it. So, uh, and where I'm going with this is that there's a social responsibility as well Mm. in how we are managing the information that we've created and the accountability that we all carry. I mean, I think it's really problematic to be honest with you because we live in a really litigious society and we can't change like as architects, that's not really something we can change right now. And uh, data becomes a liability actually uh, when it's open source or put out there. I mean, I think if there's a way to, and I'm sorry, I'm being very pragmatic here for a second. 
But um, I think if there is a way to, you know, think about uh, a convening body, a sort of third party situation that actually can be the holder of, of information. And I think historically that's, that's often been governments or academic institutions. There are um, like Bari, the uh, Boston Area Research Initiative is a really good example of this. These are places where, you know, data can be held, where it can be kind of analyzed and understood in terms of what risk it poses versus what its potential virtues are. And it can be carefully considered before it's fully, before it's fully opened up. Um, mm-hmm. And so it doesn't pose a risk to the to the people who are holding it or to potentially the people who might be identified as part of the data set. Right. Interesting to think about kind of a gatekeeper aspect to that. I mean, obviously that exists and there are potential upsides and downsides to that, to your point. One of the questions that came up asking about blockchain, blockchain introduces the potential of a trustless exchanges that remove the need for traditional third parties. Can we utilize that kind of technology to introduce trustless systems of design and delivery? Do you think that that makes sense in this conversation? I need to think about that for a yeah. while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you just brought up how, you know, thinking about ways to vet and uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's a very different point of view. Yeah. That's a tough question. I'm generally hesitant and apprehensive about this for a couple of reasons. One is, and it sort of goes back to the data sources that now there is a lot of uh, crowdsourced data that has also made its way into what has been openly available. And that crowdsourced data, you know, could be very easily, I don't want to get solid, mm-hmm. but it can be manipulated, but also could be, could drive you to a certain consensus or a conclusion as well. And so always trying to keep that separate. So I'm, I'm really, it's something that I need to understand better before uh, mm-hmm. making that jump. I guess we'll just finish up with one final question. This is more of an internal approach question that, that came from the chat. How do you approach the process of team member selection to address diversity in order to have different biases and try to balance equity through different lenses? It's a great question. I, I find that a lot of times firms are building teams based on who's available, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That's how projects typically work. But right. This or who's out, got the experience? Who right? has the experience? Who has? Yeah, exactly. Have you seen examples of that intentionally being used as a strategy when approaching a new project that has different opportunities than the last one? I do think it's important to be strategic about team building based on what the project is, what the scope is, who the client is, what the community is. But it is a tricky line to walk because your your first tendency might be to find that the firm or the partner who has the most experience with that project type. And that doesn't necessarily get you the most broad or diverse perspective. So really, really interesting to to think of being strategic that way. And I do think sometimes we are also sometimes maybe uh, thinking of a discipline that's, that's not necessarily usually on your roster of partners. Not that the fee always supports that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I think that's one way to bring diversity into the, the perspective on a team. One thing I'd like to throw there to, to Don's point is um, it's good to see that the clients are asking and making it actually critical uh, to have diverse teams. But what ends up happening is that we wait until that opportunity to look for the best uh, partnerships, right? So is there a way we can actually start to build that partnership regardless of what RFPs out there and we make strategic partnership with diverse teams 
And we continue to build those partnerships so that we're not only you know, strengthening how we do things, but we're also strengthening the diverse team's portfolios as well. So when the opportunity comes, it's always about a team that has a history, but also is demonstrating that kind of uh, practice as well. Yeah, and I, I think um, the, 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 just to end on maybe an optimistic note, I, I do think that, you know, there is an interest more broadly on transforming the way that, let's say, that disposition of projects is, you know, the way that the way that we have been doing projects has led to a very specific kind of project. And I think people are looking for, for change now for a variety of reasons. And, um, and it's an exciting moment for us when we think about constructing teams, uh, because we can actually really like indulge our, our, our curiosity and our like desire to be innovators by bringing together people like just think about it like having a conversation we're going to bring totally different perspectives to the table um to yield different outcomes and i i i think that's really exciting i that's like that's been for me over the past couple of years one of the real like bright spots actually yeah i think back to when i was in school and everybody in studio did a completely different project from each other even though it was the same brief and i just think that's something that's kind of magical about architecture and the teams and the clients and the constraints and the data. You get this crazy concoction that leads to a real result and that's going to be there for decades and decades. And I, I, it's just that to me, I, that never gets uninteresting. So uh, thank you all so much for taking the time today. I want to pass it off to Nick here to, to wrap us up. Thanks, everyone. Uh, that was really amazing. And what struck me is how it ties into the conversation uh, from yesterday and something that uh, Brunella had said was that data is tied to place and we're tied to that place as well. So when Don was just finishing out about you know building the team, we have to build our teams for the future also. So we need to be giving people opportunities to gain that expertise. Uh, and I hope if nothing else, that's what people take away from today. All right. Well, that was a, a fantastic conversation. I think I admitted to you, Nick, when we right when this was over, I, I felt kind of frazzled actually being the moderator of this virtual panel because there's a lot going on all at the same time. Right? There's I'm trying to look at the camera, I'm trying to read my notes, I'm trying to make sure I'm listening to what everybody is saying, I'm trying to move it along. We also have kind of this this back end chat going on, or people are talking about technical you know, issues or triumphs that are happening on, on the back end. And I wasn't 100% prepared for that. So this was kind of a trial by fire. But maybe you, what you can do to kind of wrap us up and bring us back to the general theme of the whole event, because like you said, it was a multi-day event. What what are the, the threads or the takeaways that you had as one of the organizers of the event to kind of pull it all together? Because I, I did get to spend a f- most of the previous day's keynote listening to the keynote speaker. And I thought it was fantastic. And I included some of that, some of the notes that I took from her in this talk. Uh, So I won't repeat myself, but maybe you can kind of tie it all together and put a bow on this event. Sure. I do remember getting that note from you and I I couldn't believe my uh, eyes because I thought you did such a great job. So you were, you were good under pressure. And it is kind of a funny thing. I think it's, you know, we didn't, because this is virtual and no one really knows what a good virtual event is, we thought we'd try some different new things. So we did this over three days. Uh, we kicked it off with a keynote from uh, Vernell Noel, who um, uh, is a professor at Georgia Tech, 
uh, and she gave the keynote and kind of set the frame for everything. And it was this really amazing mix of, you know, about digital craft and computation, but bringing it from where she grew up in Trinidad, Tobago, and talking about Carnival. One of my best friends is from Trinidad, and I've always wanted to know more from the Afro-Caribbean community and, and how that's been placed into architecture. And then to find Vernell, who uh, is on the computational side of this, I thought was just really intriguing and just tells a beautiful story. So that was to kick us off the first day. The second day was the panel that we just listened to. And, you know, if anyone's done a panel, you usually get together a little bit or before and you get to know each other a little. And even that first time we were all together, I was like, this is going to be so successful because the banter back and forth and just the way things were threaded together and the ex- shared experiences that people had, uh, I remember, and I didn't know this, kind of going in is that Don had done this project in Buffalo. I worked and lived in Buffalo for, for a while and I knew exactly where she was talking about. And I haven't been back there in years and I can't wait to go see what they've done because I, I know the exact neighborhood in the street that, that she was talking about. And then finally... Like we talked about at the beginning of the, the show, we wanted to give sole proprietors an avenue to the tools that we've been talking or, or uh, looking at. So we ran a workshop using digital whiteboards and data visualization tools and weaving in the data that people um, have access to from their communities. Joelle Martinu, who um, will be the chair of TAP next year, um, so he's the year behind me. He had this idea. He's like, I just want to show off what can happen, what can go on. How can you engage with your communities uh, through Zoom or through Teams? And it came out as this really amazing, fun and terrifying at times because we're not like CNN or some other broadcasting company. He was doing this play-by-play commentary, switching between the two rooms uh, with a green screen. And you could see behind him and he'd be like, oh, let's listen in on this. But what it, what it show, had shown me was, I've never even met him. I've never been in the same room. A lot of the folks that we worked with over those three days, we did come together and put something together that I was really proud of, that I think was pretty special. Uh, and I hope that people have a lot of takeaways and can learn some things. And, you know, again, it was getting the word out to as many people as we could. And that's why we wanted to co-produce this with you and, and get it on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. And I think the audience would as well. And that to me is kind of the power of doing this virtually is we can push this out. Like you said, like you're not limited by means to get somewhere at a certain time and spend all of the money to mm-hmm. get a hotel and the Uber rides and the food and everything that's involved. And yeah. yeah, all going to a conference is expensive, right? And it's expensive to put it on and it's expensive to get there. And there's a limited number of seats. And so by doing it this way, and then with the additional layer of being able to share it on this podcast, which I'm really grateful for, that is allowing the story to live beyond the boundaries. And that's kind of the goal of this whole show, right, is to allow these conversations to not have the boundaries that they typically have, which is one-on-one in a room somewhere, then it never gets out of there. So same thing with this conference. It's really great to have the ability to put this out there for everybody to hear and have it live beyond the event itself. I think this goes with the theme of how do we make more things equitable? And that's what doing things virtually allows us to do or scale up. Well, 
thank you so much for taking the time to do this and for inviting me to moderate the panel. It was fantastic. And uh, thank you to the panelists. They were amazing. And maybe you can just share one last thing, which is where can people learn more about what you're doing? Where can they follow you online, but then also TAP and Perkins and Will? So for TAP, you can go to aia.org forward slash TAP. Also, all of the sessions that took place are available for continuing education credits. Uh, so those are out there for people to find. You can find me on Twitter, kind of there, at Nick W. Cameron. I think so. I think I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. And then for Perkins and Will, um, we have perkinsandwill.com. And if you need to get a hold of me there, best way is through Twitter. But we do have a new site. And you can learn about all the exciting things that we're doing as we post them on the new site at perkinswill.com. Well, again, thank you. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Evan. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarchit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thanks to NCARB for their support of this podcast episode. Visit ncarb.org slash AOP and contribute to the analysis of practice survey today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.